This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The University of Hawaii Community Colleges on Oahu are launching a new program to train unemployed workers with new job skills today. The program, called Oahu Back to Work, is funded by CARES Act money from the city and county of Honolulu and is free for participants. It's a new program born from the Hawaii Executive Collaborative's Roadmap to Economic Recovery. Terry George is president and CEO of the Harold K.L. Castle Foundation and HEC's Education Committee Chair. He spoke with the Conversations Jason Ubai on Friday about the roadmap and how it's already making waves in the state. There was first some really good momentum happening before the pandemic hit. We really had been focusing on what we call a good jobs gap. At the height of our good economy in January, when we had almost no unemployment, we still had 59% of people who were not earning at what's called the ALICE threshold that Aloha United Way has set up as the amount you need to earn to meet your basic needs of housing and food and you know health care, child care, and transportation. So we had this weird economy where everybody had a job and most jobs didn't pay enough. Fast forward one or two months, and all of a sudden the bottom falls out of the economy because of the shutdown caused by the pandemic. So a group of us got together and said, let's not waste a good crisis. We now know that we need to fix our economy, but let's figure out how we can actually build an economy that's going to work for the good jobs that have skill requirements that we're not delivering in our education system. And so that was the impetus for the roadmap. The Harold Castle Foundation, Hawaii Executive Collaborative, the Hawaii Community Foundation, and the Strata Education Network jointly decided to bring together a group of 15 people from business, education, and workforce development to think together, how do we use this crisis to build better skilled staff for our businesses? Because basically, right now, in the world that we live in, we have to compete on talent. It's no longer about what natural resources you have or where you're located. It's really about whether or not your workforce has the skill set that they need to create thriving businesses that are more resilient to the pandemic. So we started meeting at the height of the unemployment crisis, and we started to look at the jobs market that's out there. We did a labor market analysis. We interviewed hundreds of people to find out what the needs were, and then we developed a set of recommendations, a roadmap to lay out a plan to provide pathways so that every worker has the skill set they need to get one of these good jobs. And so, as you can see from the roadmap, it's really that set of priorities. It focuses on making decisions, prioritizing three priority sectors that we learned from our analysis offer recession-resilient, high-wage, independent in-demand jobs. One, as you would be able to guess, is healthcare, including both clinical and community health. A second is technology, including IT, biotech, and emerging clean energy. And a third is skilled trades, construction, manufacturing, engineering, sustainable ag. And so what we recommend in the roadmap is that we begin to align what we're doing in our high schools, our higher ed system, and our businesses all around the skill sets and career pathways to get people the training that they need in those big sectors. And that's going to require rapidly reskilling people and expanding what we call work-based learning programs that give students and adults the experience and credentials they need to get these jobs. Who are you focusing on to reskill and what's available out there to retrain them for these uh, other industries that are more resilient? Obviously, the key focus is for people who lost their jobs or even if the jobs come back, and these are primarily in hospitality and retail, they're not going to pay enough um, unless they get reskilled. So there's a term in the roadmap called lifeboat jobs. Let's say you work the front desk at a hotel and your hotel is shut down. 
you have skills of customer service and scheduling that can be used to get a better job, either within the hotel industry or, or not. A lifeboat job might be to work for, say, FedEx as a stock clerk, an order filler. And then if you then combine that with industry credentials that you can get through, say, UH community colleges, you begin to get skills of inventory management and data entry. And guess what that gets you to once jobs come back? You could work as a shipping or traffic clerk and earn maybe 30% or 40% more, or a cargo or a freight agent. So that's an example of the people we're focusing on and the kind of lifeboat job strategy that can help. And one thing I wanted to share that's really good news is on Monday, the 28th, the UH Community College System is going to launch a new lifeboat strategy, and it's called Oahu Back to Work. And it provides free job training classes in these sectors that the roadmap identified, such as healthcare and engineering and construction trades, for people who don't have a job. And it gets them that lifeboat job and then that set of skills and industry credentials so that they can get a better job. And this is funded with CARES Act money from the city and county of Honolulu. The other good news that I just learned today, and this is the benefit of having a roadmap, is after the roadmap was developed, a team of people in Hawaii used the roadmap framework to write a grant to the U.S. Department of Education, which was available for up to three years and up to $15 million, called Reimagining Workforce Pathways. And in that proposal, they proposed to launch and expand apprenticeships in healthcare, IT, clean energy, and skilled trades. Guess what? I just learned today that Hawaii won $13.3 million towards that. So the roadmap is already having uh, big benefits. I think there's really three big things that, w that the roadmap comes out with in terms of a call to action. One is we need to build smartly on the momentum that we already have. You see in high schools, 16 public high schools offer career academies, for example. In the UH system, there's something called a website called Hawaii Career Explorer, which provides real-time info on high-earning, high-demand jobs and how you get them, how much they pay, and what education you need. So we need to build on that kind of momentum. Second, we need to stay focused on the skills and industry sectors that lead to good jobs and good income. And third is we need to do this fast and at scale. So we need to be fast and smart. No longer is it okay to offer just 100 job training opportunities when we have 100,000 people who need those opportunities. That's going to take coordination among the private sector, the government sector, the philanthropic sector, and others. And we're going to need to align about around what really works for people. The opportunity is great. We really, through this process, are going to turn this crisis into an opportunity to build a new Hawaii economy that really is resilient and builds on what our comparative advantages are as a special place. I'm getting the feeling that a lot of these uh, tourism jobs, I mean, they might take a while to get back if they do come back, but we're looking at retraining a lot of these employees into new industries that will be more resilient in the, in the future. That's correct. I recently did a staycation between shutdowns at a hotel with my wife, and I met a guy at the front desk named Preston. I asked him how it was going the last couple months, when the hotel was shut down, he said he did okay because he had two jobs. One was working at a skilled nursing facility, and the other was at the hotel. So while one job w went away, the other one was still there. Imagine if Preston knew where to go to get the kind of college degree or industry certificates that he needed, the kind of coaching for what good jobs are out there and how he can get the skill set to get hired. That's what we're doing with the roadmap. And it does require post-high education. What we're learning is that a great majority of Hawaii's future jobs are going to require some kind of degree or certificate. We think that you can 
do this at scale by doing what we call a learn and earn approach. Learn while you're out on the job. This benefits your employer and it benefits you and keeps our businesses strong, especially our small businesses need this so much. And that's really the uh, foundation of Hawaii's economy. It's small businesses. The last time uh, you were on our show, we had you on for early education, but in the roadmap, I didn't see that in there. So where do educators especially early childhood educators, where do they fit in this picture? Well, I think that there's a similar approach in early education. There are some really forward-thinking plans for the state of Hawaii to build our workforce in early education. The biggest challenge there is that those jobs should pay more because they're doing such valuable and important work. But there are efforts to try to address the pay issue And there are also programs within the University of Hawaii, Chaminade, and elsewhere to try to allow people who are currently, say, teachers' aides to get the credentials that they need to become early childhood teachers in our preschools and in our public schools and in our private, you know, family-based care programs. And I'm very excited that the bill has passed and the governor has signed it into law. So we now have set in stone that within 12 years, we commit to every three- and four-year-old in the state of Hawaii having an opportunity for a high-quality early learning and child care experience. And now we just have to build that system. That was Terry George of the Harold K.L. Castle Foundation and Hawaii Executive Collaborative talking about its roadmap to economic recovery. For more information on job training programs, visit our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. tune into HPR, you often hear voices from right here in the islands. I'm Gene Schiller, and on today's Morning Cafe... Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's All Things Considered, and I'm Dave Lawrence. I'm Derek Malama, and welcome to Kanikapila Sunday. In fact, one-third of our shows are hosted right here by the HPR team. They bring you news and music from here and around the world and put it in context for local listeners like you. To learn more, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. What's it like to be sick with coronavirus, either at home or needing care in the hospital? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk to a local resident who's had the illness and hear firsthand about what the symptoms were like and some tips on recovery. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Well, you know, the digital divide has always been a concern during this pandemic. It's a real problem in communities that don't have access to the Internet. HPR's Ashley Mazzuo has been looking at how some communities are addressing the issue. Good morning, Ashley. Morning. Right. So, you know, internet access right now is really important for students because everyone's distance learning. They've pretty much all been at home since spring break of last last semester and they tried to come back but um, have decided to go all the way through the first quarter um, doing distance learning. So one of the nonprofits, Wi-Fi, um, one of the nonprofits, Hawaii Kids Can, they decided to do this thing called Wi-Fi on Wheels, which is like basically a van that they equip with Wi-Fi that they can drive around and, you know, provide that internet access to a bunch of different students. So Wi-Fi on Wheels has been their solution to the internet access problem. And here's David Miyashiro, the executive director of the education nonprofit Hawaii Kids Can. It's one of the organizations leading the Wi-Fi on Wheels pilot program. We know that internet connectivity is an issue that was here long before COVID and it's continuing to persist. And you know, the Wi-Fi Wheels program, it took about a couple of months to get off the ground. Um, and the van basically goes from one place to the other and students are notified um, when it's going to be there and they can show up and, you know, use the Wi-Fi to do whatever they need to do. You know, I know that, uh, you know, the connectivity has been a real concern, particularly on the neighbor islands. And, you know, I know, I think even on Maui, they've, they've been trying to do things to boost the signal, but... Uh, 
Where is this particular project? Is it just here on Oahu? Right, yeah, it is, and it's on most of the west side. Um, it partnered specifically with Kamile Academy. It's a K-12 public school, and it has about 900 students. Um, here's Kamile Academy principal, Paul Kepka, who says, you know, the vans are they're in main coordination with his school, but the vans are a resource for the whole community. We welcome any child to hop on. If a kid needs internet, it's our school, it's our community, it's our responsibility. So if another student from another school were to hop on, we would welcome that and hope that we're able to help them. It's really similar to you know the food pickup that was happening over the summer, where if any child that needs a food, they can come pick it up at the school whether or not they go there. Principal Kapko says about 60 of his families don't have internet, and the families are notified when the van is going to be parked and is going to be transmitting the Wi-Fi to that area. So it goes from about 8.30 in the morning till 3 p.m., and about 15 kids can use it at one time, and it goes about 100 to 200 feet from the vehicle. Um, Partners in Development is a nonprofit, and they provide resources to families in need, and they supply the vans and the, and the employees to staff the vehicles. Um, the group had resources for the vans because they haven't been able to offer many of their usual in-person services, like preschools, so they've been in charge of the driving and operation. And Kamehameha Schools was also another partner on the project, and they said that the Wi-Fi could also be used to do things like telehealth or other things to help support families. So are they planning to expand this uh, elsewhere to other schools? Yeah, so the two vans only costed about $8,000 for the whole year, and the Wi-Fi can be moved from one vehicle to the other. And Ken Hozak, a vice president at Cradle Point, which was the company who installed the Wi-Fi, said that the company you know, installs Wi-Fi by, by, in the vans by converting LTE signals into Internet access for students. So he says he's been carrying out really similar projects all across the country. With wireless, you can deploy it in a day. And frankly, if they wanted to roll this out to 50 other locations, they could do that tomorrow. Um, and Cradle Point works with AT&T, so the company can deploy access wherever there's AT&T connection. And he says that the new technology could even provide um, a longer-term solution for connectivity beyond mobile vans. The schools are located near a lot of these disadvantaged neighborhoods. Schools are looking at creating their own private LTE network using the fiber at the schools and basically converting it to a wireless signal. The range that the schools could do with good antennas would be enough that they can actually bring that wireless signal all the way to the student's home. He did say that, you know, one aspect of delivering Internet to public school students that um, is a little bit difficult is, you know, making sure it's in compliance with the Federal Children's Internet Protection Act. So that means that if schools are providing Internet to students, it needs to protect the students from, you know, inappropriate content on the Internet. And so the staff actually needs to monitor the online activities of the minors who are using the school-provided Internet. So isn't um, the Department of Education already doing that, though? Kind of. So over the summer, the Department of Education set up six mobile learning hubs and um, on um, Pahoa complex area, Hana, Lanai, Molokai, and Kauai. Um, however, uh, the only one that's still running through the school year is the Pahoa one, um, and otherwise the other ones haven't been online. Um, but uh, David Miyashiro is working to roll out more vans in areas that need them in downtown Honolulu and on Big Island, Maui, and Molokai. So we took very seriously the call to action that Superintendent Kishimoto said, which is connectivity is not just a DOE challenge, right? It's not just a DOE solution. This is really a community challenge. And, you know, DOE survey at the end of last year saw that a quarter of public school students reported not having reliable internet at home, which really indicates that, you know, the need is really significant. Um, and right now, the department is still deciding if children are going to continue to fully distance learn into the second quarter starting in November, but it's still undecided. And so what's the feedback been uh, from these schools that are using this wireless on wheels? Yeah, so it's pretty new. And so the school that's been using it is the one that partnered with them, and they've been really grateful, and they said that it's been working really well. The people at Partners in Development um, who are running the vehicles, they basically just drive out there and, you know, sit there, and it's kind of like a little help window where the kids can come and, you know, knock on the window if they need help with um, whatever their connectivity issue is. And uh, are there any other barriers in, uh, you know, getting this expanded to other areas around the island? It's to be determined right now, obviously, it's up to the department whether they um, want to do it on their own and continue to set up more sites. Um, but 
these nonprofits like Hawaii Kids Can are really, um, you know, as you said, taking that call from Dr. Kishimoto and going out there and trying to solve these connectivity issues on their own. They just saw a need and decided to try to fill it. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Ashley. Thank you. We have been hearing from HPR's Ashley Mizuo about a new program, Wi-Fi on Wheels. To read her story, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at whether we're ready to handle the influx of visitors come October 15th. Reporter Brittany Light joins us this morning. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Catherine. Good morning. So this has really been a moving target. We actually would have had that uh, visitor restriction thing lifted October 1st this week, but it got pushed off. Right. And even, you know, August 1st was the first date, and then September 1st, October 1st, now the 15th. So it's been a long time coming. The plan was first announced uh, in the middle of June, I believe. So this is something that our state leaders have had a long time to be thinking about. And you talked to Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. He's now in charge of kind of rolling this this uh, program out, uh, the testing program. Um, what's, uh, what's his uh, take on this? Yes, he's, he's in charge of rolling this program out, and he's a huge advocate for the program. Um, he says that he thinks Hawaii was actually ready to allow uh, travelers with a negative COVID-19 test result to bypass the quarantine and come into the state uh, back in July. Um, you know, at that point, we had a few hundred active COVID-19 infections, and, and that's when the first delay of the program kicked in. Um, what he said was that, you know, psychologically, the state wasn't really ready at that point. And now what's different, he says, is that we don't really have much of a choice. Um, people are permanently losing their jobs. They're losing their health insurance. We really need to revive the tourism economy uh, on some level. He's expecting between 8,000 and 10,000 visitors to be coming in each day by the end of the year. So it's not what we had before, but it's certainly um, a big step forward from what we're experiencing now with just a few hundred or a couple thousand tourists coming in. And I know they made the announcements about, uh, you know, the the various entities that are taking part in this. I think Kaiser, Permanente, uh, CBS, uh, says that they'll be offering these tests. But I saw in this morning's paper there was a, a someone who was wanting to come visit here in um, Hawaii, uh, you know, in the, here in the islands, and I think checked with CBS in his area and said, uh, you know, they knew nothing about it. So, uh, you know, is there going to be like a, a one-stop shop? I mean, if travelers have questions, right, who did they check with? Yeah, I've I've received similar notes from readers saying, oh, I called my local CVS in California, and they don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, So these partnerships are brand new that the state has with CVS, Walgreens, Kaiser. Um, There's an urgent care network in Oregon called AFC that's a partner as well. Um, And then Hawaiian and United Airlines, uh, they have received approval for tests that they're planning to offer to passengers. Uh, before they arrive at the airport. So uh, my impression is that the wheels are still in motion. Um, And I I think, you know, these next couple of weeks, uh, you know, CVS and these other partners will have to kind of formulate their plan, how they're going to handle this. Will people be able to make appointments in advance to get their test, or did they show up? Uh, I think a lot of that is still yet to be seen. And the other a component of this is we've got to make sure that our healthcare system isn't inundated with a huge number of COVID cases, and uh, we've done a number of things, including bring in bringing in nurses from abroad. Right, we've got um, I believe more than 200 travel nurses now working at 10 different hospitals around the state to boost our capacity to to handle COVID-19 cases, um, and you know we've, we're in the process of 
uh, increasing the capacity of our contact tracing, uh, getting more tests so that we have them available here locally. Um, you know, the city just bought a hotel that they're going to use for quarantine and isolation. Uh, so, so the capacity to make a program like this work, it seems like it's starting to come together, but there's a lot of different components, and I think it will take a lot of communication and collaboration, cooperation between, you know, state leaders, the airlines, the hotels, uh, residents, tourists, everybody. And we can look to other jurisdictions, other states where they've tried this. Alaska's one. Yes, Alaska, another tourism-dependent state, they launched a pre-travel testing program in June, uh, right when Hawaii was thinking about it. And, you know, of course, they did have a a rise in COVID-19 cases. um, But their program is a little different in that they offer tests for incoming passengers at the airport. That's something that Hawaii's plan is not doing. Um, We don't have enough tests to to do that the lieutenant governor told me, whereas Alaska really hasn't had a testing shortage, um, or at least not not to the degree that we have. So their plan really was kind of bolstered by um, all these, the availability to to test uh, incoming travelers as they arrive at the airport. And I know know that some places are are, um, offering or mandating two tests, and I don't know that we can afford that, but uh, lots of things to consider as we uh, prepare for this onslaught of tourists. Exactly. And, you know, the lieutenant governor, who's a big advocate for this program, kind of just says, you know, if, if it becomes too risky, too dangerous, we'll reassess, we'll shut it down. But, you know, it's time to give it a shot. All right. Okay. We'll keep our fingers crossed. But thanks so much, Brittany. Thanks. Take care. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Chat. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Highway Inn Hawaiian Food in Kaka'ako and Waipahu, offering dine-in and takeout with delivery or curbside pickup, and now with packaged dishes such as kalua pig and beef stew. MyHighwayInn.com Share a little aloha this September. With Foodland's annual matching gift program, your donation is matched by Foodland and the Western Union Foundation. When you're at the register of a Foodland, Sack and Save, or Foodland Farm store anytime this September, remember Hawaii Public Radio and give aloha. The Caregiver Foundation has been around here in the islands for 12 years now. The need for support for caregivers has only grown over that time and with our aging population. We talked to Gary Powell, executive director of the foundation, about its efforts to connect with those essential workers in our community. Our mission is to work with seniors, with disabled adults or adults with disabilities, and their caregivers. Literally every aspect of life you can imagine, from handling financial needs to complete care coordination, right through death, burial, and estate distribution. So just about any aspect of life that someone might need some support in, we try to step in and walk alongside them, make the journey a little bit easier, maybe a little less stressful. During our health crisis, I'm sure that now more than ever, having an outlet for those caregivers is really important. It really is. We find so many caregivers are normally stressed, and now they're even more stressed. Some of them are not able to go out of the home at all, and that can go one one of two ways. Either it can make things better or, unfortunately, can make things a lot more stressful. Do you find that maybe people are stepping back saying, I can't do this caregiving anymore? There are some people who have just decided that the burden is too much, more than they can bear with, and they're calling and saying, how can I just walk away? I want to just leave. It's difficult to find a solution for that, but we work hard with them to try and figure that out. For some people, if the emotions have gotten to be too much, it's better to leave than to become abusive. And I'm sure that the domestic abuse issues are probably increasing during this time, but the abuse and neglect of seniors is also seen some pretty significant increase. Talk about what you're doing, you know, with caregiver support groups. Normally we have caregiver support groups that meet in person. We 
aren't able to do that right now, so we're working to put a virtual caregiver support group together. And our support groups are a little bit different. They're not condition-specific. They're for the caregiver, specifically to give them an opportunity to be able to share with other caregivers what's going on, to let go of those emotions for a little while and not have anybody judge them. It makes it a perhaps a less burdensome road to travel for that short period of time. And it might be hard, too, during this pandemic, you know, when you're caring for someone, let's say, with dementia, who doesn't really understand, you know, the need for masks and the physical distancing, and they don't understand what's going on. That is so true. I've watched and listened to different news reports about various facilities that have difficulties getting their residents to cooperate. When you're working with someone with with them, someone with dementia, they don't understand what's going on. Why do they need to wear this thing? It's uncomfortable. I don't like it. It looks weird. And off it comes. So it's extraordinarily difficult to manage that. And then when you add in adults with disabilities, especially those with mental health disabilities, you almost have seniors who don't understand and the adults with mental health conditions who don't care. So you have a double issue to try and manage and get people to understand you need to wear the mask, you need to stay here. I know you want to go out and do everything, but right now we can't do that. So the caregiver has a tremendously difficult job, whether it's at home or in a facility. Really, really tough. And you folks just recently launched a hotline, a support line. We did. We have a a caregiver support line. It's not a It's not a counseling service. It is a support line. So caregivers can call, completely confidential, talk to someone who really understands caregiving, and let them express their fears, their anxieties, their joys. Sometimes it's joys. But have somebody on the other end of the phone who really does get it. So we're finding that this is a, a big help for individuals during this time particularly. We know that nonprofits are struggling during, you know, these difficult times. How are, are you folks managing, you know, just as far as, you know, the financial support that you normally get? It's more difficult now than it ever has been, but the need is even greater. So our commitment becomes even stronger. We have to turn to the community, to anyone we can, and ask for more help. The community is extraordinarily generous during these difficult times. It's amazing to me how people continue to give and continue to support not just the Caregiver Foundation, but other organizations that are in desperate need as well. We have our silent auction on online right now, and that's getting some interest and in helping. Since we can't have our normal face-to-face fundraiser, we went to an online experiment. So you have a, what, first ever virtual auction? Yes, it is. There's a lot of really interesting things on it. Yeah, we hope people will drop over to it and take a look. Or if they just want to make a donation, they can do that too. <laughs> so, yeah, new items are being added. We add, uh, just about every day we add something new. Yeah, one of the hardest things for us is not being able to see our clients face-to-face, especially with folks with dementia. Many of our clients, we are their only contact outside of their caregiver. And to help them understand that we haven't abandoned them is very difficult. The Hawaii Community Foundation gave us a small grant to get some tablets, and that's really helped, being able to have virtual visits, although it's challenging with people with dementia, wondering all of a sudden, why are we on TV? It does help at least maintain some contact. Yes, because if you're used to having your your child come to visit you uh, if you're in a you know care home, a facility, and then all of a sudden they can't come in, the patient is left wondering, you know, where's my family? Yes, feeling very isolated. The rates of depression are skyrocketing. Um, unfortunately, suicide is also skyrocketing among our, our kupuna. They just end up feeling abandoned. Unfortunately, our care homes aren't designed. They weren't designed with this type of a situation in mind. So many of them, they're only... The only thing they can do is to shut the doors, and that means total isolation for the people inside. So it's a really hard situation. So do you find that the care homes, the smaller licensed care homes, and so many of our kapuna are in those types of community facilities, that they're the ones that are reaching out to you just because you're navigating through such uncertain times? We do get a lot of contact from the care, uh, care providers in the community. I would say most of the care, commun- uh, care homes in the community have 
gone to, on to total isolation. Just imagine you have four seniors in there in varying health conditions, usually not very great health conditions, and then you have someone in the home who's also working in a hospital or working in another facility, going back and forth. That home is terrified that something's going to be brought back to their home and affect those kupuna. It's really, it's a very difficult situation, and I applaud the efforts that the care providers are making. It's, they're doing some extraordinary work right now to try and keep people protected. Okay, so people have an opportunity to help those who are caring for our most fragile in our community with the auction, the silent auction, yes. or uh, if they're in a position where they need help, you do have that support line. Yes, and we always encourage people to check our blog on Facebook that has a lot of good things that go up on it. But anytime they have a situation they're not sure what to do with, give us a call, either at the office or call the support line. Somebody will be able to give you some help, give you some direction, so you won't be completely alone. That was Gary Powell, Executive Director of the Caregiver Foundation, for links and info about the new support line and for the virtual auction, which ends on Wednesday. Head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now check in with astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence about a joint effort between two Hawaii-based telescopes to gather data on a mysterious black hole. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time. Our weekly look into that massive universe surrounding our tiny and very troubled planet, as usual, turning to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we've got him on the line right now. Welcome back, Chris. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week's stargazers, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, can all be seen in the southern sky after sunset, and the planet Venus will also be visible in the east before dawn. The moon this week is passing through its full phase, and so stargazing for those faint objects in the heavens is going to be challenging, to say the least. One thing people won't be able to see for sure up there is that black hole that I bet you've got some news on. Indeed. So, not content with pioneering the search for extraterrestrial life on Venus, the James Clark Maxwell Telescope atop Mauna Kea has teamed up with another Mauna Kea observatory, the Submillimeter Array, to revisit the mysterious black hole known as Povehi. This collaborative effort has yielded incredible new data on the evolution of the black hole over the past decade and has shown that the black hole continues to evolve almost right before our eyes. And tell us about the changes they've been observing, Chris. Well, the black hole appears to be wobbling. You can imagine this akin to a spinning top which wobbles as it spins. This constantly changing orientation of the black holes has revealed changes in the material surrounding it and giving us a view into the environment of the black hole. And in terms of environment, what's actually there? Povehi is surrounded by an accretion disk of superheated gas. This is what we can see when viewing the object in submillimeter wavelengths. As this gas falls towards the black hole, it heats up to billions of degrees and emits vast quantities of radiation. As you can imagine, this is an incredibly hostile place to be. And uh, kind of like our own world, it's, I bet it has a cosmic storm aspect with turbulence and stuff. Exactly. The material surrounding the black hole crashes against itself like waves on an ocean and causes changes in brightness that we see with our telescopes. What we need to do now is get higher resolution data to build up our picture of this magnificent object. And I know when they get some more details on it, you'll pass it along here on Stargazer. It's Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next time. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the West Hawaii Exploration Academy Public Charter School. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, ferrarochoi.com.
Earlier this month, we marked the birthday of Hawaii's Queen Liliuokalani, and so it's fitting that we throw the spotlight on her music. Four symphony musicians were so moved by the songs that she wrote uh, that they compiled a new album honoring her legacy. Take a listen. Internationally known violinists Eric Silberger and Manuel Lo were here in the islands performing in a Hawaii music festival just as the pandemic shutdown was ordered. We reached out to two of the members of the quartet, Josh Nakazawa of Mana Music and Dwayne Padilla, who is no stranger to Hawaii Public Radio, about how the idea to celebrate Queen Liliuokalani's compositions was born. We start off talking with Josh. We were all playing together before the very first lockdown, um, and I had invited Eric and Manuel to stay stay here instead of traveling back to New York and L.A. to wait it out until it was safe to travel again, and all of our work was disappearing anyway, so during that very last night of our last gig, uh, Dwayne was playing on it as well. We uh, ran through uh, Dwayne's arrangement of a song written by Queen Lilia Kalani, one that she wrote while she was in confinement at uh, the palace. And uh, when we ran through it, the feeling was, it was electric. The, the parallel of feeling confined in a lockdown in Hawaii and the feeling that the queen might have felt in her confinement made us play as, as though we were really trying to, to connect with her, with what she wrote. Once we did that, we really wanted to share it. And so we thought that since we had nothing else going on, that we would, we would make some lemonade out of the lemons that that we had, and um, we decided to cut this album. And Dwayne wrote all of the arrangements of all the 15 tracks that are on the album. To me, it just seems so eerie, you know, thinking about you know her state of mind and when she was writing the music, and then and then you folks performing this. Her music really speaks to a lot of things that are going on. This the, the feeling of just being isolated because she was incarcerated for because of the overthrow. She wrote these songs to capture that that sadness. But then you know also she turned around and also wrote some songs like asking for forgiveness of those who overthrew her. You know, and these times that are so politically charged, that that's kind of a. That, that, that really spoke to us, that, that kind of thing, too. The, the thing that impressed us most about it is because we're all class, classically trained musicians who are just sort of discovering her music for the first time. And she really has the gift of Meliady in the same way that Schubert wrote a lot of art songs. Queen Rilkalani is a wise answer to Franz Schubert in the way that she was able to construct these beautiful melodies. Because she had a lot of Western training because her, her and her brothers and sisters got a lot of Western training from a bandmaster, Mr. Berger. But also she was able to write melodies that sounded... To Westerners, beautiful, but also were able to tie into uh, the way people sang from the indigenous Hawaiian music. Like she would tap into using intervals that people use when they uh, when they sing the Hawaiian falsetto and stuff like that. So she's been able to be a bridge between two worlds: the Western world and the, the musical world of Hawaii before before the uh, first contact. And so, of the songs then that are on this album, do you have a particular favorite? My favorite is uh, Ka'ipo Nohea. It's actually a lullaby that she wrote for one of her Hanai siblings. That's my favorite one because it's just a tender lullaby. On the album, there's quite a few powerful ones. The one that she wrote what was originally Hawaii's first national anthem because I guess the, when she was still a princess at official functions, uh, they would play a God Save the Queen, the British national anthem at all these functions. And then King Kamehameha was like, hey, we should have our own national anthem. So he told Queen Lulikalani to... Uh, write one and in a week she was able to write uh Mele Lahui Hawaii and she was able to uh premiere it with a at that time recently she had just been uh, named the uh choir master of the Kalahau church the one on King Street and she premiered that song there in 1866 that one's particularly powerful we're really fortunate to have some really special guest artists that joined us for some of these songs. And Jake Shimabukuro has joined us for Ahe Lamakani. And we also have uh, 
Benny Rietveld, who's the bass player and music director of the band Santana, who grew up here, and he's playing on that track as well. And he also played on Aloha Oi. He added a really beautiful just magic to that track. I and mean, we also have Greg Sardina, who joined on yet another one. And so it's really been a really beautiful time connecting with so many other great artists to collaborate with. Well, do you have a favorite? I would say right now, it changes a lot. But right now, I would say Aloha Oi is just... Um, a really, really nice one, or or, uh, or Ahe La Makani, too. Yeah, our version of Aloha, it's pretty interesting, because the, the string parts sort of rock a little bit the way Slacky Guitar does, but then the voicing is also with four-part harmonies by choir. But then Benny Ritfeld, he has this electric guitar thing to it that totally takes it into the present, but in a very tasteful, beautiful way. It, it, it's, it's pretty magical, the Aloha, our version of it. I can't wait. <laughs> well, you know, I have been learning uh, a bunch about our uh, very talented monarchy and was fortunate enough to attend some uh, concerts over at Kauai Hau Church where they featured the music of Hawaii's Ali'i. And it, it's just fascinating that, you know, they're so talented and, and the music is just, it, it's precious to have that. You know, because I was talking to my friend Kylan Reese, who is uh, he's a musical historian and luthier in town. You know, people have this, this impression that, that maybe Hawaii was not that sophisticated, but at that time period, Hawaii's musical scene was very cosmopolitan. He was saying that, you know, before they would run the big operas in New York and L.A., they, they would do a dry run of the operas here in Honolulu just to test things out. So the, the, the musical environment of that time was very, very, very cosmopolitan. And so people like Queen Lilikani grew up hearing, you know, symphonic music and jazz music, as well as the local music, as well as hula. So they had a really rich musical environment to draw upon. And we see that in the beautiful music that she writes, that she and her uh, three siblings wrote. You can tell that they were part of a rich environment of music. I guess historically, most people, most royalty have their in-house composers write music for them. It's really a rare thing and beautiful thing that she was so prolific as a composer herself. Yeah, and she wrote over 150 songs. And you know, the interesting thing about our album, I was talking with Kylan over coffee once, and he was saying that, you know, before the lap steel guitar, violin was the lead instrument in a lot of Hawaiian string bands at the turn of the century. And, and people don't really remember the violin as part of Hawaiian music. And so part of this project was just to reimagine what that sound might have been like, you know? Yeah, the sound of violin and Hawaiian music, and I think it sounds good. There are some people that still people remember. Sam Leah is a very famous uh, Hawaiian fiddler that people still remember. But uh, there were other guys too, and you know, we're trying to rediscover the, the sound of what the bowed strings might have been in Hawaiian music at that time. Yeah. Well, I know all the efforts that you know Kylan has uh, put toward creating, you know, the Sovereign Strings concert. It's a real nod to the history and the influence of uh, of Hawaiian music and what we had on the on the world. Yeah, we hope to to put the albums in in Iolani Palace at some point very soon. Uh, as of now, you could still uh, pre-order the album on the website manamusichawaii.com. It's a way to get your hands on it now. And it'd be a, a wonderful thing to have uh, as we celebrate uh, her birthday, the Queen's birthday this month. Absolutely. Hopefully we can look forward to you folks maybe playing it there uh, on the palace ground someday. Yeah, that would be a really wonderful experience. We are. Uh, we really hope that we get to, you know more opportunities to, to play, play this album out, and that would be a very fitting place for us to, to do so. Anything else that, that you want to share with our listeners just about what the experience has been for you? Part of our process of how we recorded everything was that we had the Queen Lilia Kalani songbook. And in that songbook, it has all of her songs and the translations, as well as a historical background a little bit into the, into the songs. And so what we would do is we would read the historical background out loud with the group, and then we would read the poetry or, or the song, the lyrics of the song, and we would then have an idea of what we would, how we play it, and then we would record it. And we did that for every single song, and I, we really hope that it, that every track is imbued with this process, and that we hope people can enjoy knowing that that is that was our process when we when we recorded it. And a tribute to our queen too is that she wrote all of the words, or mo- the majority of the words are in Hawaiian. But uh, she did write her own English translation for many of them. So she was also a multi- multilingual uh, 
a musical artist too, which is the, that made the job easier for us. And it's also a sign of how impressive a musician she actually was, that she could write her songs in Hawaiian and then translate the lyrics into English herself. Pretty impressive, especially for somebody at the turn of century that at that time period. Well, I think the approach that you folks have taken to really kind of feel what she was writing and play what she composed, I've no doubt that that it's going to be a, an awesome album. I want to mention one more thing about about the album that I. I thought it was really important. We got this really incredible artist to do the album cover work. Uh, his name is Solomon Enos, and he's done a lot of really incredible works. And when he made the album cover for us, we had given him our story about how we had formed as a group and our and like what we were intending to do with the album. And he created this image, and which is now our album cover. And then also on the album, we had a, 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 a the illustrious Aaron Mahi wrote a, a beautiful preface about the history of uh, Hawaiian music involving Queen Lulukani and the songs they wrote. So Aaron Mahi blessed us with a beautiful preface to the album too, which is really uh, it's a uh, exercise in Hawaiian history. It's a real education. Just a beautiful preface that he wrote. That was Dwayne Padilla and Josh Nakazawa, part of the Liliu Kalani String Quartet. Those who pre-order the album are getting it in advance of its official release later in October. That's a wrap for today. Tomorrow, we have a call-in show planned. We hear about an effort to target fraud and waste with the millions in CARES money that is being spent. What are your thoughts? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.